The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hey there, I am so excited to be presenting this special interview with Charles Eisenstein. We spoke for almost two hours. So this interview is divided up into two parts. Today you will be hearing part one of two. Next week is the second part and I really encourage you to tune in because this discussion with him has really been life-changing for me even since I spoke to him just a few weeks ago. So I encourage you to listen to both and really take in what this incredible thought leader, Charles Eisenstein, has to say. Thanks for listening. Hi, Charles. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Beth. Happy to be here. So good to have you here. Charles Eisenstein is an essayist, speaker, and author of several books, including The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Charles, thank you so much for being here. I was telling you before this interview, I had asked you to be on uh, my psychedelic summits and finally get this opportunity to talk to you now at this very potent time in human history. Um, This podcast is really designed for people who've awakened to something deeper within their soul that feels like more of a calling, more of a purpose, um, a step into maybe a transformational business and stepping away from work that is not really aligned with what's in their hearts. I'm curious, what was your your quick story of how you became this author, thought leader, essayist, um, you know, speaker? You know, what did you used to do and how did you come onto this path? What did I used to do? Okay, <laughs> how, how far back do we want to go here? <laughs> Well, I'm curious if you had a career as I, I always say, did you have a career as a corporate attorney at one point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I never really got with the program. I went to a, an elite university. I went to Yale University. But even then, I was kind of half-hearted about doing the things I had to do to be <clears throat> to be successful, so to speak. Uh, to build my resume, like there was definitely a success path that was laid out before me. And, you know, you have to do an internship on Wall Street or, you know, some like there's a whole program. And I just without having any cogent uh, uh, critique of the whole thing, I just couldn't be bothered to do it. Like I just couldn't make myself do it. I didn't have the 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 drive i didn't have the motivation i just kind of i don't know in those days we called it being a slacker that was something that that 
was slacking was invented in my generation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there I, I graduated with no future, really. But I what I had done, like, even in college, I was pretty unhappy. And so I spent a semester in Taiwan. And when I graduated, I just went back to Taiwan. And, you know, my first job was at a bar. Uh, but soon I started doing translation. And before I knew it, there I was, you know, doing translation and, and stuff like that for for corporations and things. And I was a freelancer, but 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 so I did have a little taste of that world. Uh, kind of, you know, one foot in, one foot out, and got to experience a little bit of the um, cynicism, the despair, the um, just, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to describe it without sounding like a cliche, the emptiness. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, at the same time, during this time I was living in Taiwan, I um, encountered psychedelics, I encountered uh, Buddhism and Taoism, Qigong, Chinese medicine, um, and, and what they had in common, like what Qigong has in common with psychedelics, is that they both confirmed my suspicion that somebody hadn't been telling me everything that there was about reality. That there is that, you know, my Yale education, which was supposed to be the pinnacle of human knowledge, left out an awful lot and not just left out, but kind of took me or took us into a cul-de-sac. And that there's so much more out there and that this so much more is essential to living a fulfilling life for me, at least. Yeah. And I'm curious, did you did you just start to write out of like this this place in your soul that's like, I have something to say, let me write? Like, was this intentional or did this just, you know, did it come through? Like, how did your writing start? Because your books have been incredible, you know, and they everything you write is really still so transformational and so incredible. Where do you think that came from? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much what you said. Like, there was something that I felt I needed to say. It was mine to say, and I, I just needed to say it. It it started with just this, um, I, I guess I was kind of intoxicated by some of the discoveries that I was making, the connections, the things that I was, the patterns I was recognizing, the things I was putting together. Okay, so I remember the moment, okay? I was <clears throat> I was you know, walking, we moved back to the, to America, thought it was a better place to raise a family because Taipei, where, where we had been living, was polluted, et cetera, et cetera. And I had this idea of like the childhood, kind of like I had, where the, the neighborhood, we moved to a neighborhood with, with lots of young families. There'd be kids outside playing, cops and robbers, hopscotch, jump rope, you know, like pickup games, you know, stickball, football, like a kingdom of childhood, you know. And there was nothing of the sort everybody pretty much kept to themselves. And I was like, what happened? What's going on here? Why this separation from each other? And it was obvious 
Oh, on one level, from the blue glow emanating from every window, the, the televisions, you know, but also the automobiles, like everyone's driving places. There's nowhere to walk to. Uh, also, the air conditioners that trap people inside. So I'm like, wow, all these technologies are part of a process of separation that is the same process of separation that holds humans separate from nature, that holds one race separate from another race that that even holds matter separate from spirit that that reduces the world to numbers so i was like it's all separation the money system uh expressing separation uh the educational system the medical system everything is part of this narrative this this mythology that ultimately rests in the separate self in a world of other. And, and so like, so then I, I'm like, wow, I've got to, you know, uh, tell people this <laughs> and, 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 you know, offer an alternative to this story. So, you know, that's when I wrote The Ascent of Humanity, <clears throat> which took me four years. And it was like this big meta historical narrative and I, and I kind of had the idea that I got probably in school that, that was like, okay, if I, <clears throat> excuse me, if I produce the correct answer, then the problem is solved. I'll turn my paper into teacher. I'll get an A and the world will change because it's just so obvious, you know, here's the right answer. So everybody's going to read this book and be like, oh, okay, yeah, now, now we know what we have to do. And obviously, nothing of the sort happened. Uh, instead, I, you know, went bankrupt, <laughs> having put everything into that. And um, yeah, that. But I, I did keep writing, and um, you know, eventually, disabused myself of that formula for making change. Is that you? <clears throat> come up with first principles and argue from those. Uh, anyway, I could get really philosophical about that, but maybe I'll uh, stop. Well, we'll come, we'll come back to these because you, you mentioned so many valid points that I want to go very deep into, um, you know, these systems of separation, separation from self, from nature, from earth, from one another modern technology, um, you know, I could go back over and over about the financial system. Um, but I have one one question that will tie this all back together. Um, when you started, let's say, your first psychedelic experience or, you know, other experiences on top of that, how did they or, or did they influence your thinking? You know, was this already inherently in you on some level or did the psychedelics wake it up to a whole new level of seeing things differently or seeing, you know, this this reality? And then also, did it shape yeah. any of these books that you've written? So my, my first <clears throat> my first psychedelic experience was with LSD when I was uh, maybe 21 or 22. Um, yeah, it's not, you know, it's funny how LSD is not really a trendy medicine these days, but but it is a extremely powerful psychedelic. Mm -hmm. And I, I have great reverence for that medicine because mm -hmm. uh, especially, you know, when it came onto the scene, it was just what 
was needed. And and there is kind of an intelligence, I think, to the to the medicines that they they are attracted to the the cultural need. The illness seeks the medicine, and the medicine seeks the illness. So they were a, a potent uh, awakener, and then yeah. you know maybe set the stage for the medicines that are um, whose time is here right now. Uh, and and who knows what the future will be. But anyway, so I have so I had a very very powerful experience that that <clears throat> as the cliche says can't really put into words but yeah as i said before it revealed to me the enormity of mind reality the mystery um the 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 profundity of of our confinement and what could be outside of it. And um, what it does, what it did, and, and I think what one of the potencies of psychedelics is that when I came down and came back into this reality, it didn't seem quite as real as it had before. This is one reason why psychedelics can sometimes um, cause uh, psychic psychotic breaks uh, because like but it's a truth actually what we take conventionally as real isn't and mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that we should treat it as not real because we signed up for this reality for a purpose <clears throat> you know if you're an actor in a in a in a play in a theater production and you go around saying to the other characters, well, this isn't real. Like, no, 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 you're supposed to actually be in the play fully. But, but it gave me a sense that this isn't all that there is and that we have some degree of authorship over mm -hmm. the play. We're not just the players. We're not just the actors. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah, and I guess it, it, it confirmed and then amplified my protest. Because, you know, as a teenager, I, I became aware of, of the horrors happening on this planet, the wrongness in the world. And that was one reason why I, I couldn't get with the program in, in college and have a career. Because I'm because uh, on some level I'm just no I don't want this this can't be it but there wasn't really an alternative so psychedelics showed me they didn't show me what the alternative was but they showed me that there was one that 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 my my protest wasn't just you know some playing out of my defiance against my father or whatever you know it was there there's it was real yeah that's 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 one of the ways that it impacted me and um now this is fascinating so i have a similar story working with lsd at the age of 14 and i you know barely knew what it was and it just came to me and that was that and um i look back on that experience and see how much that really shaped the trajectory of my life right like 
that experience of like that truthiness where it's like, well, wait a second, I've been taught all of this and now I'm seeing something differently. And, you know, being part of the system, you know, I was raised in suburban, suburban USA, you go to you go to college, you get a job and you do that until you die. That's what I was taught. It was that program, right? Like, same thing, go to Yale, go, go get a good job, go get the internship. Um, but I'm curious, you know, you know, over the years with me, what I started to experience, especially as I got older and worked with psychedelics more intentionally and less recreationally, um, you know, things started coming through, you know, and I also I have a, a Buddhist background and it was, you know, like the same things that the Buddha said just now confirmed in a very visual way where it just seemed easier to grasp these concepts. You know, like, oh, this is actually ancient wisdom that has been said by all these great sages, but now I get it. You know, how do you how do you understand the the illusion of our reality? It's it's not easy to the human mind to conceive this. Um, a question for you I have. So during my very first ayahuasca experience, I had um and it was probably to this day my most powerful experience or one of the top, you know, three. I was able to see certain things that I I didn't know, um, you know, at the time, like, is this real? Is this um, showing me the future? Is this, um, you know, when I came out of it, it was like, is this even worth living? Because I got to see, you know, like what you're, you've been saying, like the the nature of all the reality, the systems that are broken, the, the financial system being just this grand illusion, which, of course, we all know you don't need any psychedelic to see that. But, you know, and I, I came back and I did not have a, psych a psychotic break, but I had that that period of maybe six months questioning, like, what is the whole entire point of being alive? And I'm curious if you've ever gone to that place. You know, your, your work goes really deep into this, you know, this, this nature of our reality where there's a lot that's broken and then there's a lot of beauty. You know, it's like this polarity of the world that we live in. It's the, the nature of all, right? There's always going to be these, those, those polar opposites. But for some people, especially the last two years, it's hard, right? It's hard to even justify being alive. Um, but I'm curious, you know, psychedelics or not, have you been taken to this state of like the ultimate doom of like, what's the point of it all? Oh, yes. No, on, on, on sober or psychedelics, <laughs> a very um, hellish Iboga experience. Um, in fact, more than one hellish Iboga experience. Uh, but this particular Whoa. hell was was um, mm -hmm. God's like God's cosmic eternal loneliness, where uh, like like the hell of being alone in eternity, and basically God goes crazy and invents all of this uh, to temporarily. Even if it's for eons, even if it's for billions of lifetimes, to temporarily lose God's self in this delusion of separation and this play. But even all of this is just as nothing in eternity. And it's inescapable. And like that's this, I was in that state. Uh, so. The funny thing is, um, 
after that. Oh, and then it was <clears throat> then it was followed by the worst nausea and like you people call it purging, but it didn't even feel like purging. It felt just like hell, you know, um, that was just, you know, 12 hours long, unremitting. And then and then the weird thing is, though, after that experience, I felt good. Like I felt like even that state of being was something that had to be felt and experienced so that it wasn't lurking in the background all of the time. So it was like the very core of meaninglessness, like meaninglessness taken to its utmost cosmic dimension that is actually inherent in the dominant worldview today. Um, you might call it the Newtonian worldview, which despite 100 years of quantum mechanics still rules our thought forms. So, yeah, you know, to make it a bit more, more mundane, though, in the last couple of years, a lot of people have been grappling with exactly what you were talking about. What's the point when it is so hopeless? when we're being overtaken by what looks an awful lot like evil and and delusion, and it looks like we're never going to get out of it. It's the feeling, it, it, it resonates with a feeling of being lost, a feeling of being stranded and never going to be able to get home. What I've learned that the antidote is, it's to, to find the place in yourself that knows that each person will find their way home and to actually look at people with those eyes mm -hmm. however long the journey might be like you will you will come home mm -hmm. no matter how lost you seem and I don't care if we're talking about you know Bill Gates or Donald Trump or Anthony Fauci, or whoever you think is the most lost person, they're on a path home also. And that knowledge of, of all, of each being, can coexist. It's not, it can coexist with the despair and the cynicism. Like they can, they contradict each other and they can both live inside of us at the same time. So I'm not saying to suppress your despair or cynicism so that you will know that each person will find their way home. It's to it's to to simply to know that each person will find their way home, even if at the same time you don't believe it, because the truth has a has a feeling quality that we can all recognize. And when when i'm able to be in that truth then i know that i'll find my way home also cuz a lot of the misery that that i mean like i'm i'm not speaking as like some enlightened person here who's been just fine for the last 2 years like i've gone through pretty much some of the darkest times of my life in the last 2 years so this is something i've learned from experience and it's this um, 
yeah, this this agony of of being marooned on planet crazy, and 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 I'm stuck here. If I know that others are not, then I know that I am not also. And then that leads to, okay, why are we here? Which is what you brought up before. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to answer that. Right now, I'm going to point to the question itself. It's coming from somewhere. It's not a stupid question. It is a vehicle towards something. I could say it would only come up if it had an answer, but that's not quite it. It may not be like a tidy metaphysical answer. And I could give a tidy metaphysical answer that would have truth in it. We are here to contribute to life and beauty on Earth. We are here to participate in the further coming alive of the universe we are here to play our roles well. We are here to enjoy being alive and to glorify God through our wonderment at the mystery and magnificence of reality. I could say all of those things. But what's more important than that is to recognize that this question comes from a valid place, that, it, that we can trust the question the important thing is not to suppress the question. We can trust the question because it is a vehicle to something. And it could be one of those answers. Or it could be something that doesn't fit into those categories at all. Beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, and also it really, what keeps coming up for me in all this is that, you know, and this is connected to this journey of Iboga or any, you know, really any psychedelic and what they're here for. Why are they teaching us this? But this idea of being able to hold both, which is really, you know, this, you know, when you said I'm not enlightened, but it really is this state of liberation where you're able to hold both. You know, this is the ultimate human experience, right? To hold both the the utter darkness, the other like, you know, despair and hopelessness and the the negative, right, as we would call it, and then this beauty and this contribution and this purpose for, you know, the gift of being alive. And, you know, I've I've interviewed so many people and spoken about this a lot, that this, you know, this increase in um, the psychedelics, you know, like whether it's for healing or for growth or just why are they here right now? Why have they um, gotten so popular? Why are they expanding across the world? I personally believe it is to help us really sit in those spaces like where you've been, that that utter hell and to just realize that, yeah, like nothing actually is permanent. We are all essentially going to the same place. Doesn't matter who you are, you know, the, the evil on the planet or, you know, Mother Teresa's of the planet. Um, we're all human. Like we're all essentially the same nature no matter what. And everybody is going through similar experiences, whether we want to believe it or not, because, you know, it's the, the human story, right? It's the archetype. And um, I'm curious, you know, I didn't know you had ever worked with Iboga. That's pretty uh, hardcore. That's that's one I have not done yet. Um, but, you know, just being that this podcast is generally about psychedelics and we'll we'll get off the topic as well. But I'm curious, you know, what is your take on 
why you think they are um, expanding so much at this time in human history. You know, is it, um, like you said, like the medicine is here for what we need or is it something else? Or is it, um, you know, the one thing I keep speaking to a lot is that, the mainstream media reports all these, you know, the, the research, oh, this is helping heal depression, anxiety, PTSD, blah, 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 trauma. But then at the core of it, it's like, well, what is causing all that depression and anxiety and PTSD in the first place? And I'm curious what your what your views are on this, this whole, you know, psychedelic renaissance that we're having. And it's obviously here to stay, I think. <laughs> yeah, there, there, I mean, there's so many... Uh, levels at which I could respond to that. Um, I could stand in different myths mm -hmm. and speak to that. And and by myths, I don't mean something not real. All right. Partly they are in answer to a prayer. The prayer being, "Help me get out of here." Uh, this that that came from the the centuries of cultural sensitives who recognized that we were trapped but had no idea how to get out. And the psychedelics came uh, as an answer to their plea. Came, and that doesn't mean that they weren't here already. They were held, many of them, in other cultures uh, and some of them were held outside of the physical realm and came in answer to this prayer as discoveries by scientists. So that's one way I could talk about it. Um, another way, though, I, some, this is, you know, a little bit playful. Uh, but, you know, the mythology of the Illuminati, you know, and the human trafficking elites and like all that, all that darkness, you know, the... The reptilians, yeah, all that stuff. So again, the reptilians. Like, um, that's a mythology. <laughs> Everything that is a vehicle for truth that is independent of its factual provability, but there's some truth in it, right? So in that mythology, if there's evil superhuman or transhuman controllers, then there must also be guardians. There must also be be beneficent spirits who have the the evolution and 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 uh development of humanity and freedom of humanity at heart well what are they what are they doing why haven't they swooped in and rescued us from the evil guys it's because they don't use that kind of technology the technology of domination the technology that that erects something as evil and goes to war against that. The way that they intervene is, or one of the ways that they intervene is by introducing psychedelic medicines into the matrix that awaken people from the matrix. So, yeah, that's another way to look at it. Like, I don't actually think you can understand this um, in conventional linear causality. And when you're on the psychedelics, it's obvious that there's some intelligence at work here that if you describe it in terms of which neurotransmitters are 
activated and blocked and 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 which parts of the brain like if you reduce it to that you're missing something you're missing for example why is the brain constructed in this way to begin with you know like like you're missing a lot mm-hmm. and and you can understand some things about it on that on that level but why why privilege that way of understanding over others one thing that's clear to me is that for the human condition to fundamentally change we have to access the ways of thinking the ways of seeing and the kinds of action and technology that come from them that the psychedelic experience makes available to us or at least um reveals to us it doesn't mean that we you have to be on psychedelics to do this kind of work but um it it's one of the the indications that, re, as I said before, reality is bigger than we've been told. And that just doesn't mean, that's not like philosophical reality only. It's practical reality. And this is, this is why, for me, my introduction to psychedelics corresponding with my time in another culture was so powerful because I was also able to see that, that people who were immersed in a different worldview that was in some sense, if not bigger, at least very different than the scientific worldview that I was brought up in, those people were able to do things that were impossible. Impossible from what I thought was real. And I'm talking about Chinese medicine, I'm talking about Qigong, I'm talking about like Taoist shamans. Like they could do things that, that were impossible. I felt them in my own body, I experienced them in my own body. It was, it was an entire culture that was living in a different reality. And part of the despair that is so prevalent today comes from accepting a very limited account of who we are and what we're capable of doing and of, of cause and effect. Which account is it that we are accepting in our despair? It's the same one that generates the world as we know it today. It's the causality of force. So, and and reductionism. So if we're limited to that, then the despair is actually fully valid. It is impossible. The situation we are in is impossible. If we take for granted the capacities that we have been trained to accept as the only thing that's real. We're in an impossible situation. But if we take seriously what we've been shown through psychedelics and through so many other things about how the world really works, if we even take to heart like the synchronicities that probably all of us have experienced at one time and another in our lives, especially when we let go of control, and stepped into uncertainty, if we take that to heart and recognize that there is a, is is another intelligence at work here, probably more than one, then the despair loses its foundation. Because if, if that synchronicity, that wild synchronicity where of all the people on earth, I ran into this person at this moment, if that can happen, what else can happen? And then the next question is, how do we access those powers? 
and what do we have to sacrifice in order to access them? And I can give you the answer right now. What we have to sacrifice is control because those powers are not under our command. They are functions of participation. So they're also functions of recognizing our place in and our relationship, our place in the matrix of all being and our relationship to that. So it comes down to who am I really? Who are we? So this is why I think it's it's necessary, even when we're talking about like nitty gritty, real 3D problems in the world, social injustice, environmental destruction, like like practical stuff. It's it's necessary to take it to this level. Otherwise, we just fight an endless losing battle of force versus bigger force. Yeah. And and you said it right there, the, the control. If there's one thing that I've gotten from my over 30 years of work with psychedelics and and like you, like going really deep into some pretty dark places um, to that point of hell where I didn't think I was going to come out of it. You know, I actually thought I was going to kill myself once during an ayahuasca ceremony in Peru. I mean, I've been to the deepest of deep ends, but it's brought me to a place of surrender that I did not think was possible as a human being. And not to say I'm perfect, you know, it's like we're not enlightened beings. But yeah, it's like at the root of everything, which is something I've been bringing up so much lately. It's like, you know, because it, it's it's interesting to be in this career where I'm speaking about psychedelics and I'm constantly saying, well, wait a second, this isn't just like the Band-Aid on top of our problems. This isn't just to make us like feel better and be less depressed. It's like, what is at the root of all of that? What is at the root of these conditions that society is really coming up against and more than ever in the last two years? And you said it, it's like this this deep sense of, um, you know, the one I've heard the last couple of years is like feeling safe, right? Like no one feels safe. And I get it. It's like, of course we don't feel safe. Look at all the the narrative around us. But then you have to question this deeper reality of like, what is safe? Is there even such a thing as safe? What does it mean to be safe? Like we are actually never safe, you know, according to um, like the nature of reality, like we are safe and then we're not safe because it's all just this construct. We're of the opposite illusion. of safe. We're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what does it mean to be doomed? And then it comes down yeah. to this ultimate of like control, um, death. Uh, the connection, right? Connection to, you know, you say higher intelligence, I say source, spirit, whatever we want to call something beyond us that's actually maybe all that's in control. You're, or what is this deeper level question of what is control and what does it mean? Um, and I I personally feel like this is part of the growth of uh, psychedelics. You know, it's like, yes, there's a lot of people, because I've, I've witnessed this firsthand the last few years, there's a lot of this desperation of, I am so depressed. I am so lonely. I'm so isolated. I'm so filled with anxiety. I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to start microdosing or I'm going to start trying ayahuasca or maybe this will fix it. There's this, you know, I, I keep calling it the Amazon prime effect. Everybody wants these quick fixes, right? It's like the new antidepressant, but like what's at the root of all this? And I'm curious, you know, you've mentioned separation, despair, um, disconnection. 
you know, we're in this like very, you know, for thousands of years in this individualistic society that's been all about the self, which we know is changing. Um, you know, I tend to, even though so far a lot of this interview has been going into this this dark, deep despair, but I tend to be an optimist. You know, I do see the opposite spectrum, which is there's more and more people waking up. There's more and more thought leaders like you speaking up. There's um, more beautiful conversations. I believe this last two years is turning into a gift on some level. I know there's a gift in it somewhere. I don't, you know, maybe we don't see it yet. But I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you feel like is the ultimate root cause of all this? Like I've gone into maybe it's money. Maybe it's, you know, the the control. Maybe it's the seeking of power. Maybe it's the fact that there's constantly this, this pull, you know, this pull towards self. Um, but, you know, what do you think there is? Yeah, I know this is a big question, but what is the solution? Is there a solution? Yeah. So one way to see the root cause is as a story, um, which is the fulcrum of our collective agreements. The world as we know it is obviously been created by humans, like, for example, the money system. I mean, most of the suffering of humanity on Earth is created by humanity. There's a certain amount that's also built into reality beyond our stories. People are always going to get sick. They're always going to die. They're going to get old. They're going to lose loved ones. I mean, there's already a lot of uh, pain and grief built into reality. But we add so much more on top of that which you might recognize when you, like a lot of people have this experience of visiting another culture who lives in a much less modern way, really lives in community and and much more simply, and who may be you know, earning less than $5 a day. And they say, I've never seen people so happy as in that Cairo village in the Andes, you know, as in that that village in Afghanistan, as in that village in Bangladesh, as in the among the Hadza in Africa. I've never seen people so happy. I've never seen that amount of joy radiating out from people, whether they're happy or sad. Still, all of that joy, like this other way of living, which, by the way, I've yeah. seen, you know, yeah. multiple times where I'm yeah. like, wait, their kids run free in the streets and it's not a problem. What's wrong with this Western society where everybody's putting up fences and security systems and locks and like people won't even say hi to you on the trails where I live anymore, you know? This separation, this so this story of separation, I was, saying, I was, I was talking about human agreements, right? We've added, we've, we've created way, way, way more suffering than is just the default in reality. And it's through our agreements. And the agreements hinge on a story, on a common narration of what's important, what's real, how, how, how to be a human being, um, uh, where we came from, where we're going, what a self is, what's the nature of reality, uh, why are we here? Like, that's a story. So one way to change things is to change the story. But it's not quite, here's the solution, because the story, even though it seems like it's a human creation, that's not actually quite it. We didn't actually create the story. 
we are acquiescing to the story. We're playing out the story. We, on some level, we, we chose to step into this story. And I have to believe that there was a wisdom in that, that, that we are playing out this drama for what it will bring to us in our development. Every story has to be told. Every story has to be lived for, for, for it to be integrated and for what is next to happen. So what I see is that this particular story of separation is nearing the end of its telling. And that it's not that we have to make a new story, but we have to tune into what the next story is and inhabit that story and ask, who am I in that story? How do you answer all these questions then? Why am I here? Um, what's the purpose of life? What's important? How do I be human? Um, how does the world work, right? All of these things have, a, have new answers uh, and new meanings from the story that is beckoning to us right now. So, so yeah, so it's not like, it's not a solution in the sense of we, the solutioneers, are going to make this solution happen. But we can recognize a transition that is possible. And then the question is, what is my part to play in the new story? What is mine to do? What is mine to say? What is mine to be? To recognize that, I think we have to actually look for it. You know, to see it, you have to look for it. To look for it, you have to know that it's there. And that's the value of telling a new story. It says there's something there. And that's also the value of psychedelics that gives you a preview. It shows you that there is a there there. And that becomes a beacon, like a guiding light toward that new story. It, and and it, 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 yeah, without it, like I'm just wandering and wandering and wandering in circles. And that happens sometimes. And I, and I you know, have my head down looking at my feet, wandering in circles. But when I raise my gaze, there it is. And I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is so perfect because this is this has been my own experience. And this is where I was really called. I mean, it came through me and it was, you know, years of visions about having this discussion about psychedelics and, you know, sacred plant medicines and how they do help us really tune into that. You know, especially in here in this Western world of survival and work and being busy and being constantly, you know, connected and there's just so much noise and there's been very little space. You know, even even at the beginning of COVID, it was like ah, a little space and that didn't last long. And there's so many people in this Western society that are just constantly, you know, it's the the rat race, the hamster wheel and um, and it's like that despair, like I know there's something more. I know this can't be what it's all about, but they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to pay the bills. They're trying to make ends meet, send the kids off to college, like go through the motions. And for me, it was one of these, you know, I went through a series of events. It was like initiation, initiation where I finally was like, 
I can't take it anymore. Kind of like you, it just happened in my 30s. Like, you know, like this can be what it's all about. But this is where, you know, I, do, I work with a lot of clients who come to me at this breaking point of like, I know I'm here for something more. I know I'm not here just to be part of the system or just to hate my job so much that I drink a bottle of wine every night after work. I mean, this is quite literally like the common story or I'm just tuning out and or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering like this this path that a lot of people are on, you know, how is because here's the problem, right? It's like you and I are saying, um, yes, there's this part of us that knows what am I here for? Like, what is my part? Why am I incarnated here at this time? But then there's the other voices, which I hear, and I, I get people saying this, well, like, not everybody has that privilege to take a look at their purpose because they're just trying to survive. What do you say to that? I mean, this is where we get- That's actually, that's actually very condescending and patronizing to say, you know, only the affluent, only the privileged have the luxury of looking at the purpose of life and so on. Is that actually true? Because when I have interacted with people who are in the global underclass, they are no less aware of these questions. It's not like they don't think about those things too. And sometimes, even in the midst of the struggle to survive, they will do things, not just thinking about these bigger issues, but they they will act on these bigger issues. They, they, will, they will become activists. They will become change agents. They will create things that have nothing to do with their surviving better. In fact, that will put them even at greater risk. I'm thinking about environmental activists in Brazil, in Ecuador, in, in Peru, in, in Chile, in places where, in Guatemala, where you can get killed, tortured and killed for being an environmental activist. And these are not wealthy people who have like extra time on their hands. So sorry, I'm feeling, you know, a bit like angry at this, you know, at this, at this critique, you know, it is, it actually inverts, it it actually comes from a, a privileged smugness. And it says that basically, if we want the whole, whole world to be enlightened, they have to follow the course of development that we imagine ourselves to be at the pinnacle of. So yeah, like most people listening to this are probably not concerned about about their food tomorrow. But does that mean that you are in that you are actually better off than people who are wondering about where their food is going to come from tomorrow? Not necessarily. They might be happier than you. They might be suffering less than you. They might know something that you don't know. So like this, so anyway, um, it it brings to mind a a story um, that Cynthia Jures told me um, uh, about a pilgrimage she led to India, you know, and they're, they're going from place to place. And one of the people on the pilgrimage is um, a medical doctor, very, very, you know, very wealthy, well off, and just miserable and and just like crying and crying, you know, and one day they're crying there and a woman comes up uh, carrying a baby, a woman who is wearing rags, like 
one of those people who doesn't know where her food is coming from tomorrow, like indigent. And she's even carrying a baby. And she says, don't cry, and like strokes her face, don't cry. And she's just radiating, radiating joy. Like, don't tell me that this is somebody who doesn't have the luxury to become enlightened and to ponder the deeper mysteries of life. And really, like, to take it even to a further extreme, um, it's the um, Viktor Frankl's famous quote, uh, something along the lines of this. Those of us who were in the camps remember that there were some who went from hut to hut comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. Though few in number, they offer proof that of this truth, that everything can be taken away from somebody but one, their choice of how to respond to circumstances. So, and that none of this means that therefore we shouldn't do anything about poverty and injustice and so forth. This is not a way to escape our responsibility and in fact our, our desire to do something about it. It's not like you have to fight yourself to do something about it. It's not a battle between luxury and enjoyment versus being a good person. <clears throat> the luxury and enjoyment become empty and shriveled and hellish if you are not also contributing to life and beauty in the world. So this is not like, <clears throat> you know, some justification for something. For, for, for selfishness. No justification is needed because it's not something that, that you actually want. You can try. You probably, some of your clients have tried. They got wealthy and they retired early to play tennis and golf. And that lasted like two weeks because that's not why we're here. This is part of a new story. Why you are here is not to maximize your, your security and self-interest and money and and no that's not why you're here that is a lie actually why you are here is to contribute to life and beauty on the earth to do things that are meaningful to to create something and say that is good that's why we're here so psychedelics are not or should not be and cannot be well understood as a mere indulgence of those who have time for them. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times.